0: Well, it is a thrill to be here again. Um, it, it's it's a, an exciting collection of people, and ex- a remarkable set of ideas. Um, and I have to tell you, it's a little um, daunting, but also inspiring to follow two of my own personal heroes at this podium this morning. Um, and I would say Professor Randall and Professor Spence's presentations give you just a glimpse of why my current job is so exciting, uh, to be able to be around people like this who are thinking about the world in new ways uh, is endlessly exciting, endlessly daunting, endlessly inspiring. And I'm gonna come back to that juxtaposition of something being daunting and something being inspiring at exactly the same time. Now, um, uh, because I had an opportunity in 2005 to talk about me, I'm actually gonna talk about you uh, today. And I'm happy to talk about me separately, privately, if you'd like, or in questions afterwards. But what I really wanna focus on is something that um, I have been thinking about uh, for, for many years, and I rarely get a chance to speak about it publicly, so I'm gonna use this uh, somewhat private occasion to speak about it. Um, now, um, as I just mentioned, I'm trained to be a neuroscientist, and I spent my formal scientific part of my career trying to understand how the brain assembles itself, how the circuits of the brain get laid down and stabilized, and how those circuits are modified through the experience that a young child or a young young animal might have. Um, Probably the most frequently asked question of me um, is not about how the brain develops or not about um, what my theoretical physicists are doing at MIT, Uh, but it's a question that I think comes from people's own personal experience of their own lives. And the question that I'm always asked is, do you miss the lab? And I can tell you that when I found the lab, after I had graduated from college, um, it was one of the most, I would say, you know, probably the most intoxicating experience of my life. I had found this thing I had been looking for. I found a way of using my mind and using my hands, a way of interacting with people that really was a thing that I had been searching for for my whole life. I loved the lab. But, Perhaps surprisingly, I don't miss it. I don't miss it because what I learned over the years that I was a scientist, that the thing that I found most exciting, most compelling about doing science was not simply the miraculous discoveries that you can make and the exhilaration of seeing something that no one has seen before, but the experience of working in groups and doing, for want of a better term, something that I call collaborative thinking the excitement of sitting around a table with a bunch of smart people, puzzling over some observation that someone had or some challenge that someone in the lab had encountered and somehow out of that interaction among the people around that table, someone having an idea that no one would have had on his or her own. And much to, I have to say, my astonishment on moving into academic leadership, I find that that is how I spend most of my time now and doing it with a wider and wider group of people on more and more exciting topics. So, um, I wanna talk a little bit about collaborative thinking because it's something that I don't only find personally invigorating and exhilarating and just frankly fun. I believe It is among the most important activities that drive us toward our future. And it's something that's happening, of course, here today. It's why we're all together on this this marvelous location. So when I think about what we do when we get together and think in groups, think in teams, work in teams, I kind of sketched out a few um, rules of engagement or a few of the premises that we have to take on if we want to do this collaborative thinking most productively. And the first is that you, of course you want to have good partners in it and you know, this group that has been selected for this summit couldn't, have, couldn't be better. But in order to enter into this, you have to kind of promise yourselves and your colleagues that you enter into it with a promise of being intellectually curious, deeply curious, so that I really care about what each of you brings to the conversation, and also about, but a promise to be intellectually generous, that we're gonna to listen to what one another says. Another critical element, and I say these in no particular order, I haven't figured out which of these might be more or less important, is that we enter into it without fear. And I can say that quite simply, but you know as well as I, the number of times you've encountered a new idea, or met someone new, or anticipating meeting someone new, and the thing that you find overwhelming is how daunting that seems. And I come back to what I said about my colleagues who spoke before, both daunting and inspiring. And so we have to approach these kinds of interactions without fear, we don't know what the product of these conversations will be. Another element, that is, um, I would say, enormously important, increasingly important, is that you bring into the conversation people from diverse backgrounds. So diversity, there's a lot of talk about diversity as simply a moral good. Diversity has a very practical good because I can tell you that when I gather people around me to address a particular problem, if they all come from the same background and with the same perspective, we're gonna get a very mundane answer that, frankly, we probably would have gotten to each of us on our own. So diversity is incredibly important. The last thing I'll mention, and I'm sure that any of you could mention another half dozen important elements of these kinds of conversation, is that these conversations are meritocratic. At MIT, we talk a lot about how much we value the place being a meritocracy. It's not a word you can use in many places today. But when you enter into these conversations, ideas win or lose based on how good they are, not on how powerfully they're asserted. So these are kind of the uh, the elements or what they call the rules of engagement. And I can tell you that I couldn't be more optimistic or more excited about our nation's and the world's future when I see what is happening today. Because I believe that the generation that you all come from understand this kind of collaborative thinking, collaborative building of our future better than any generation has before, at least in recent memory. There is something that I feel is is rapidly transforming, that we're moving from a more siloed, hierarchical kind of structure to something that is far more horizontal, far more integrated, far more powerful. And you all uh, do this in a way that's very natural. So as I say these things, I'm fully aware that you were kind of saying to me, well, yeah, sure, why are you even mentioning it? Because that's the way we live our lives. Um, But I can tell you that what I see among this current generation is so distinct From my generation and how you're approaching the problems of the world, how you're approaching your futures and your contributions to solving those problems that, um, again, I could not be more optimistic. Even though when I read the newspaper it's hard to maintain that optimism, when I actually meet the people who are forming our future, I feel hugely optimistic and hugely excited. Now these things, these gathering of people, don't, it doesn't happen on its own. So this is not spontaneous. I would say that um, you know, the, you know, the entropic energy would drive us away from groups and out of communities and away from collaborative thinking. And so the convening of these groups is incredibly important. And I personally believe that that is one of the primary functions of leadership, is to be a convener, to be a listener, to be a synthesizer. And, um, The people who do this well, I think, are really the visionary leaders um, of today. And I will mention something that often goes unmentioned at these gatherings. I've now had the huge privilege of being at three of the Academy summits. I want to thank Wayne and Catherine Reynolds for their visionary leadership in bringing us all together so that we can engage in this work of collaborative thinking so together we can imagine a world that's better and brighter tomorrow than it is today. So I would ask you simply to join me in thanking Wayne and Catherine. Um, The um, products of the work together, um, you all are at the uh, beginning of your careers. Uh, The products of the work that is going on over these several days and that you do this year over these six months, um, I can promise you will follow you as you proceed over the next five years, 10 years, 20 years. Um, and the only kind of last uh, observation I would make, I would not call it a word of wisdom, but just an observation. Uh, one of the questions that I'm also often asked is, you know, when did you know you wanted to be the president of MIT? And I would say, never. Um, uh, you know, when did you know you were going to you know, be what you are today? And I would say, um, I never did. Uh, because our lives, our careers, evolve, evolve in ways we could never have anticipated, and I think those are the stories that we just heard from Professor Spence and Randall, um, that the questions that you might ask today are likely not to be the same questions that you'll ask tomorrow or the day after that, and to approach uh, your future with, again, intellectual generosity, intellectual curiosity, and a kind of openness uh, so that the events, the experiences, the conversations you have, allow uh, you should allow them to actually change your mind, change your direction, change your ambition. Thank you.